Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Okay, great. Um, you with me so far? Sort of making sense? I've been really encouraged by the fact that I've been worried about the complexity of this, and yet most of you have been stumped by the coffee bags at the thing there. <laughs> so the most complex thing today is how to open a bag and use it to filter a coffee. That's um, uh, the trinity. You're all like, yeah, it's easy by comparison. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I deliberately, actually, we could have found a way easier way of doing it, but I just wanted to test your, your skills to see... Are these guys up to the Trinity? Are they, uh, no, no, no. Um, I also apologise for coughing and spluttering. I just got this really annoying cough. So actually, if you are listening on the podcast and you've got this up really loud uh, and I cough every now and then, I'll probably freak you out. So uh, sorry about that. Um, great. Okay. So one more session before lunch. And um, so what I wanted to do in that first session was really just get us thinking about the idea of the Trinity and just rushing through the Old Testament and New Testament, primarily to show how the ideas built uh, and how the raw materials of the Trinity were found in the Old Testament and made sense in the New Testament. But actually, of course, a lot of the articulation of the Trinity didn't come even within the New Testament. Uh, It came as people reflected back on this in the light of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit and started to try and piece it all together. Um, And so a lot of the development the doctrine of the Trinity came throughout church history Um, and if you were to look at the couple of hundred years after um, well probably first four four to five hundred years after Jesus you'll find all sorts of development as people tried to put language to this idea of the Trinity they found uh, almost like spotting something in three dimensions in a world of two dimensions and uh, they tried to sort of articulate it pin it down a little bit and huge fierce debates over this and um, actually if you I'm not going to dig into the historical stuff today but if you look at the way it developed over time and some of the debates and some of the ways the Eastern church and the western church split over the way they articulated things and certain people were um, uh, considered heretics for particular views all this sort of stuff it's really interesting to see how the ideas developed and if you do want to read more on that um, I particularly recommend a it's quite a hard going book but if you're historically minded uh, then it'll it'll be good it's by Robert Leatham it's called the Holy Trinity um, It's not the easiest book on the Trinity, it's not even the best book on the Trinity, but in terms of the historical development of the ideas and the various controversies and understanding the key players in the development of the Trinity, that's a brilliant book. Um, And I thought about trying to condense some of it into this and then I bored even myself, so I didn't want to bore you as well. So if you want that book, check it out, it's really brilliant. Um, But otherwise, what I want to get into now is thinking about how the Trinity is revealed to us I mean, I've said the raw material is in Scripture, but how do we take that raw material and start to actually construct an idea of what the Trinity is, what it means, um, and how are some good ways to think about the Trinity, and how are some bad ways to think about the Trinity? And in a sense, what I want to kind of do is get the best of those first 400 years without having to tell you Athanasius said this, and Arius said this, and you know, all sorts of uh, boring names that don't mean anything um, but make me seem clever. I'm just going to kind of skip over that and try and just express some of the good bits it's really a 400 or 500 years of um, theologically, theological development and think about how to think about and how not to think about the Trinity. And 
possibly um, one thing which, which I think may be helpful um, is to think about the Trinity in two different ways. So I didn't put page numbers on these notes. Um, so we're in session two. Um, yeah, uh, note, we're going to be on the one that at the top it says, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I think. Yes. Yes, the revelation of the Trinity. How is the eternal Trinity revealed to us? A distinction which may be helpful is a distinction between the imminent trinity and the economic trinity. And let me just explain what that means. Um, when theologians talk about the imminent trinity, or sometimes they talk about the ontological trinity or the essential trinity, what they're talking about is the trinity um, as it always has been internally to itself. Um, so, essentially, it's the Trinity as has always eternally existent. When we talk about the imminent Trinity, that's what we mean. God as he is and always has been. But there's another way of talking about the Trinity, which is often labelled the economic Trinity, which has nothing to do with financial stability. It comes from a Greek word, oikonomos, um, which means the orderly management of a household. And when theologians talk about, um, and it's a bit of a weird word for them to choose, but they've chosen that one so you know we're stuck with it and um, when people talk about the economic trinity what they're referring to is the trinity as it is revealed in creation and salvation um, acting in our world so when we think about the trinity i guess there are two different starting points um, there's god as he always has been and there's god as he has been revealed to us through jesus through scripture through uh, creation through salvation and uh, there are all sorts of debates really over how much they overlap and which one you should start with when you're thinking about the Trinity. Should we think about God as he, as he eternally has been and is that the purest way to start thinking about the Trinity? And some people will say, yeah, but we can't even get to that because the only way we can get to that is through what's been revealed. So you've got to start with that. So all sorts of methodological debates over it. Uh, Karl Rahner um, coined this this term is known as Rana's rule. It may not even have been him that coined it, but he said the economic trinity is the imminent trinity, and the imminent trinity is the economic trinity. Essentially, he's saying that there's there's overlap between them, and the overlap comes in the area of truthfulness. So. Uh, this is my summary of how I think we should think about the two aspects of the Trinity intersecting. The economic revelation of the triune God corresponds truthfully with his existence in eternity. Nothing revealed in the economy, that is through creation, salvation, Jesus, all that sort of stuff, will contradict the truth of the imminent Trinity. The faithfulness of God requires that he reveals himself in a manner that truthfully reflects who he is. But whilst wholly truthful, the oikonomia is by no means the whole truth and cannot be said to exhaustively describe the triune God as he is eternally. Sorry, I just said that I put that sentence together. That's my definition. It is, but it's lifted from an, an MA essay I wrote on that, so that was quite a pompous way of putting it. But essentially, <laughs> I've made it more complex than Rana's rule did. But essentially what I'm trying to say is this. Um, when we look at the way the Trinity is revealed through Jesus, through Scripture, through salvation, through creation, um, what we see there will truthfully reflect God as he always is. Because God does not lie. We know that from Scripture. So God will not reveal himself in a way that is different to how he actually is but because in revealing himself to fallen fallible human creatures he has had to put himself across in a way that we need to be able to grasp he has truthfully represented himself but we have not fully seen the full truth of who he is so when we look at the way God has revealed himself we can say that is truly reflective of how he is but I'm 
recognising that I only see part of the picture here. And that actually, if you reflect on the imminent trinity, God as he eternally is, he's far, far greater than the little sort of smattering that we've been able to see through Revelation. Does that make sense? Sort of. <laughs> A different... Yeah. yeah, so yes, so um, we've not yet seen him face to face as he fully is. I think when we finally come face to face with God, we will find he is far greater than we have ever possibly imagined, but we will not find that he is different to what we have possibly imagined, I think. Yeah, yeah. To put it another way, um, the imminent Trinity stepped into the economy of salvation. That's the way that um, theologians talk about it. When Jesus stepped into this world, in order to rescue us, redeem us, um, the imminent trinity stepped into the economy of salvation. That's the, the word. The imminent trinity stepped into our world. And two verses, I think, that help express this are 1 John 1, which we'll come to a bit more fully in a minute, and John 1. Um, 1 John 1 says, The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. The imminent trinity, the relationship between Father and Son, stepped into this world. Or as John 1 um, Sorry, that was 1 John 1. As John 1 puts it, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. And this is sort of expressing something about the imminent trinity, God as he was before creation even. That true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The imminent trinity stepped into the world. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And when we see this Jesus who stepped into our world, we see something of the glory that has been hidden from eternity past. We don't see it in all its fullness, but we see it in all its truthfulness, um, if I can put it like that. And that's just, I think, quite an important distinction to hold it in mind um, as we sort of move on and try and explore this a little bit further. So next page. How has the Trinity interacted in eternity? <laughs> well, I think really the only way we can think about the eternal Trinity or the imminent Trinity is to reflect on the Trinity as it has been revealed to us and to assume that that is a truthful representation of how God is and always has been. And I think if you start with the father-son relationship, um, I think that's a great place to start. The revealed relationship of father and son relates not just to the way that Jesus and God the Father interacted while Jesus was here on earth. I think it reflects something eternal. So when Jesus came and he said, I am the son and I interact with my father this particular way, you don't get the sense that they said, okay, so uh, when I go to earth, what name shall I... I'm going to pick the son. That's going to be my name. And uh, do you want to be the father? Okay, from this day on, we'll be the father and the son. I don't think that's how it worked. I think when Jesus stepped into this world to faithfully represent God to us, he revealed what has eternally been true about um, about the Father and the Son. And I think we can see that in some passages like John 17, which we quoted earlier, where uh, Jesus talks about the, the Father loving the Son before the creation of the world. It seems to be eternal labels that they've had for one another. 
Um, and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 uh, are other places which we could look at as well. So when we see the Father and the Son uh, being the way that Jesus reveals his relationship with God, and we assume that that is an eternal relationship, we then need to say, well, what are the aspects of fatherhood and sonship that we can assume are part of the imminent trinity, the eternal trinity? And Fred Sanders puts it like this. He says, there are certain elements of sonship as we know it among humans that could not apply to a son who is eternal and essential. For one thing, he could not be younger than his father. Of course, that's a given in this world. You meet a father and his son and you don't go, which of you is oldest? Like, we know... That's, that's just not how fathers and sons work here. Like there's, there's an age thing. But when we're talking about a father-son relationship that is eternal, th- that, that can't be part of the metaphor that applies to God, if you see what I mean. Um, <clears throat> uh, for another thing, he could not be one of many possible sons because he exhausts the totality of sonship in himself. For similar reasons, he could not have a mother. When all these aspects of sonship as we know it are subtracted, what is left? Two things. First, the son cannot be a, um, a different kind of being than his father. A father may create a statue or a house out of something besides himself, but a son comes from his very being. He is not a lower order of being, but is on the same level as the father. Second, the son stands in that relationship of originating from the father. He comes from the father. The classic word for that relation of origin is begetting, so we say that the father begets the son. So what he's trying to say here is that when we think about the father-son relationship, we can rule out certain aspects of it that aren't meant to be tied up in the metaphor. The idea of age, one being older than the other. Um, Because Jesus is the eternal son. He has eternally been the son. That means he can't have existed later than the father. That's not part of the metaphor that applies. Um, He didn't come out of like some kind of relationship that pre-existed between a father and a mother. That's not part of the metaphor that applies. Um, But there are certain things about that metaphor that are really helpful. So father and son, um, we use the language of begetting rather than creating. If I were to create something out of the dust, I have made something, but I've made it out of something that is external to me, and it doesn't bear a connection to me. Whereas traditionally, the church has talked about Jesus not being created, but begotten. So actually in the creed, it says begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And the point is, he's not made in the same way that God got down and he created out of the dust, Adam and Eve. He comes from the same substance, the same essence of, um, as his Father. So to say that God is eternally Father and Jesus is eternally Son is to say that the Father has eternally begotten the Son. The Father is the source of the origin of the Son, and the Son proceeds from the Father. So again, this is technical language that's used in the, in the creed. He proceeds from the Father. He was not created, but he, is, uh, he came out of, he comes out of, uh, the very same substance as the Father. And there are two metaphors which... Um, Uh, the church has often used um, and Mike Reeves in his book which actually if you want a starter book on the Trinity um, The Good God by Mike Reeves is a really good place to start it's about 90 pages long Um, it's it's very helpful it's it's like deceptively easy to read and you read it and it feels simple uh, but actually it's just packed full of truth and if you read really really carefully it's brilliant little twee in places some bits of it I find a bit I don't know 
just not my style. I, I, I sort of cringe a little bit at it. But it's very, very helpful, a great place to start. But he use, shows you two um, metaphors that the church has often used. I think they're fallible metaphors, but they're helpful in some sense. <coughs> he says, many theologians have liked to compare the Father to a fountain, ever bursting out with life and love. Indeed, the Lord calls himself the spring of living water in Jeremiah 2. And just as a fountain, to be a fountain, must pour forth water, so the Father, to be a Father, must give out life. That is who he is. That is his most fundamental identity. Actually, to say, just to go back on what we said earlier about um, the eternal existence of God, if you were to sum God up as eternally Father, uh, and I think that is a good way to sum up God eternally, um, then for him to have had that eternal identity as Father, he must always have had a son. Because before I had a child, I was potentially a father in so much as I could have become a father, but I wasn't a father. Um, for, for God to have always been father, there must always have been a relationship from father and son. So when we talk about the procession of the, or the generation of the son, we're not saying that at some point God was not father and he became father, or he was potential father and he became father. He has always been in that relationship. He has always been um, almost the the origin, pouring forth life to the sun. Another metaphor is the lamp. So actually in Hebrews 1, it talks about the sun being the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And Reeves says, the father is never without the son, but like a lamp, it is the very nature of the father to shine out his son. And likewise, it is the very nature of the son to be the one who shines out from his father. The son has his very being from the father. In fact, he is the going out, the radiance of the father's own being. Now, I think these are fallible analogies Um, I think the point is to draw our minds to the idea that just like a fountain pours forth in order to be a fountain so the relationship of the father and the son is one of pouring forth and being poured forth in the sense that a lamp shines forth and the light is shone forth it's to draw our minds to the idea that the son proceeds from the father but they are of course fallible analogies because there's a point where a lamp is not plugged in and then you plug it in for the first time and it the light comes into being and they're not saying that about Jesus that he was there potentially but then got switched on at some point it's not saying that but it's to try and draw our minds to the direction of flow almost of origin Um, and this is very much the language that people would use of origin the father is the origin of the son and it is in the father's nature to give forth to the son and it is in the son's nature to flow out from the father so you see this little diagram on the right-hand side um, trying to express something of what is known as procession. That is, that the Spirit and the Son um, proceed from the Father, and that's a phrase that is used in the Creed. Um, the Father is the origin from which the Spirit and the Son proceed, and it is in their nature to, to go out from the Father, like light goes out from a lamp. But the word eternal is really important. And as the councils grappled over the language, they wanted to express that this is not the generation of the sun, as in he wasn't there and then he became there. It's the eternal generation of the sun. The sun has always proceeded from the Father. And so their nature of their relationship has always been that God, the origin, gives forth to the sun and the sun proceeds from him, as is the spirit as well. Are you with me? This is a little bit baffling. Hopefully it will become more sensible when we look at... Sensible is not the right word, but it will make more sense as we look at it rooted in salvation. But yeah, go for it, Jamie. 
Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yes. So, um, <coughs> so it does sound hierarchical, doesn't it? And um, and I think, and this is a huge uh, minefield. Is there hierarchy within the Trinity? Um, Maybe we'll come back to that in a bit, because if I can try and lay some of the groundwork, uh, then we may be able to come back to why I don't think it's as much of an issue as it sounds. Um, but just to say, actually, this is a live debate at the moment, and particularly last summer, there was a lot of debate between some prominent theologians accusing one another of deficient views of the Trinity over this particular thing. And annoyingly, I'd written an essay on this in my MA a few years ago, uh, which I was very proud of, and then last summer thought... I think I got that wrong. So, um, <laughs> um, so I, I'm still trying to think through exactly some of the implications of this. Uh, it does sound hierarchical, but I don't think it's meant to in the sense that it's not saying the Father is the most important and that the others are less important. Actually, that is, that's a heretical view of the Trinities we'll come on to in a minute. Um, they are all equal, yes. Um, but the, the debate really is, can you have hierarchy of purpose without hierarchy of value? Um, and can, can you say that they have different roles but equal value? Um, and I think you can say that, uh, whether I... Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, you're right. I, I'm, I'm absolutely not saying that the Father is the most important. And actually, when people get into debates over the hierarchy in, um, within the Trinity, I think Fred Sanders says it really helpful, uh, helpfully in one of his books. Um, he says that a lot of the focus on um, hierarchy, a lot of the confusion, has been because we've got fixated on the idea that hierarchy is related to roles, um, but really when it's talking about procession, it's more about origin and source, um, but they're of the same value. And also you need to agree. You can't have a mm. Yeah, that's very true. But lots of people would affirm that and still say, yes, but the father is the, the most important one and the others are, you know, steps up the ladder to the most important one. And I absolutely want to say they are of equal value, which we'll come to in just a second. But yeah. So I'm just walking towards you, not because I want to terrify you, but just so I can hear. It's a bit echoey in here, so yeah. Go on, what's your question? <laughs> So the creeds don't use the word Trinity, just as the Bible doesn't use the word. Actually, some of the creeds do, but, um, uh, but the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity. So Trinity is a term that was coined later by... Oh, I forget who coined it. I, no, I can't remember. Um, but it was coined later to be able to sum up what the raw elements of Scripture were teaching. Um, uh, 
But actually, most many of the creeds, the Nicene Creed, um, the Athanasian Creed, various other creeds, were put together to try and sum up these raw elements in a way that everyone could agree on. And partly, they were, put, they were created in order, as the culmination of long debate, to be able to say, no, this is what the church has always believed, and we're going to protect that against heretical views that were coming in. Um, and so the idea, of the question of, can you be a Christian and affir affirm the creeds and not believe in the Trinity is an interesting one, which maybe we'll come back to a bit later, and we're going to look at one of the creeds at the end of the day. But, um, but yes, the word Trinity is not in Scripture. Um, it and the creeds were ways of formalising and saying, look, this is what we can agree on, and these are some safeguards to stop us ending up adopting some heretical views. Um, well, we'll look at that in just a second, actually. But let's just keep moving on for a moment so we can get to... Um, <clears throat> I want to get some group work in a bit. So as we think about God as he always has been in the imminent trinity, and we think about how God has revealed himself to us in the economic trinity, and there's a relationship between the two, um, it, we need to think probably in terms of... Uh, the eternal generation of the Son and the temporal mission of the Son in this world. So when we see Jesus interacting in this world, um, what we see here is an extension of what has always been the case in eternity. Actually, so if you turn to the next page, you're probably on it already, um, the one with the little triangle at the bottom. Essentially, what we see when we see, see Jesus talking about his interaction with the Father and the Spirit, when we see him in the Gospels and then in the Epistles and the work of the Spirit today, we see the mission of God, which has sort of basically extended from eternity into our world. And I think reading that back, we can look at the mission of God in this world and read that back into the Trinity and say, that tells us something about how the Trinity has always been. And so the difference between the diagram on this page and the previous one is simply that the arrows are slightly longer, in order to show that the flow that has always gone from Father to Son and Spirit actually continues out into this world. So when we look at the way that Jesus talks about having been sent by the Spirit, uh, sent by the Father, rather, um, uh, this is not something new, it's an extension of the flow, like a fountain, like a, like a lamp, that has always eternally been the case. It's an extension of that flow into our world. It's a continuation continuation of a relationship of origin that has always existed in the Godhead. Uh, can someone read those verses? 1 John 4, verses 7 to 14. And just as, as they're listening, try and pick out <coughs> what hints this gives us about the relationship between the, well, all the members of the Trinity, but particularly the Father and the Son. Someone read those verses for me. Someone who's not Ruth since she's already read it. Would you read Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us a 
of the Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So I think in these verses, um, we see truths about the Trinity as they always have been, but also about how the Trinity are in their relationship to the world. Um, so God is love. We see that at the beginning, uh, which is the foundation for the Trinity. He is unity and diversity. And actually that father and son relationship predates the incarnation. So God didn't send Jesus and thus become the father. Um, God the Father was always the Father in relationship with the Son, and the Father sent the Son. And the sending of the Son was actually a, <clears throat> an expression of that eternal relationship that they have. So just as the Son has always proceeded from the Father, so he now proceeds from the Father into this world. And so actually we see, going back to the hierarchy point, that the idea of sending sounds a bit like a, a subordinate person being sent by a more important person. Actually, it's the flow that just comes from generation um, that just extends out. It's not like they've always existed and then suddenly God says, no, I won't command you to go and do this. There's always been this sense of the son proceeding from the father and now he proceeds out as he is sent into creation. That eternal flow of procession continues into this world. And actually, John then says he sends the Spirit as well um, to, to be with us, um, uh, given to us. And as we saw, actually, in the first session, the doctrine of the Spirit is less clear in Scripture, but the Spirit is also sent. And there seems to be a direction of procession that is the same as with the Father and the Son. So since the Spirit is the breath of God, it seems to make sense to talk... Um, not of eternal begetting, but eternal spiration. That's what uh, theologians talk about here. The, the eternal spiration of the Spirit, which is a ridiculous way of saying um, that just as the Son proceeds from the Father, so the Spirit, the breath of God, comes from the Father, who is its origin. You with me? Hmm. <coughs> um, so I, I think um, so within the broader theology of the letter and John's theology I mean elsewhere John talks about no one has seen the father but the son has made him known So, um, and Jesus says if you have seen me you've seen the father so I think the point is historically no one has seen God um, but through Jesus we, we do see God uh, but even then, we need to recognise that we've only seen a small part of God. Um, yeah, does that answer the question? Um, if Jesus, if the Son comes from God, mm. only God, that's what it is, what, how is it that the Son is different? How can the Son be different if... Mm. if yeah. Like, do you get it? <laughs> no, I don't. No, keep going. No. <laughs> yeah, let's let's come to that in a moment. Actually, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Go for it. Uh, how how do I explain that when Jesus says in John? 16, 17, is it, um, about uh, that he's going to send the Spirit? Yes, so actually this is, um, <clears throat> do you mean that, because Jesus says he is going to send the Spirit, 
rather than the Father, the Father is going to send the Spirit. Yeah, so this is actually a massive, um, uh, this is a massive de debate in church history, um, which was one of the major divisions actually between the East and the Western church. Um, the question was, does does the Spirit proceed from the Father or from the Father and the Son? Uh, and actually in, seeing the, yeah. So, so I think that, so part of the debate is really who, who does send the Spirit? Does the Spirit get sent by the Father or by the Son? And I think Jesus, um, Jesus both talks about him sending the Spirit, him asking the Father to send the Spirit, and the Father taking what is his and sending it to us as well. So there is some kind of ambiguity over the language. Um, I, I, I think... Um, Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a huge debate. I don't know I can answer it really quickly. Um, but I, I think what I would say is that probably the primary way to think of it is that the Spirit comes from the Father. Um, but this is where getting into hierarchy gets us into trouble because I think there's a real mutuality to it. So when we, I mean, even when we talk about the Son being sent by the Father, um, the way of talking about that sort of line of progression can make us think that the father is calling all the shots here, but of course the son gets to choose as well. And uh, when we think about, well, we think about the cross in a little while, we see that the son is just as much part of that decision-making process as the father. And I think it's similar with the spirit as well. So it's not like the spirit's just sitting there waiting for his orders. <laughs> like the father may send the spirit, but also Jesus gets to ask the father to send the spirit um, because there is teamwork going on um, I'm not sure I can say much more that would be very helpful on this, except that if you want to read more on it, look up the philoque cause, it's called, um, and that's the particular debate uh, over whether the Spirit proceeds just from the Father or the Father and the Son. Um, I could probably point you to a few helpful resources on that, but um, it's a tricky one. <laughs> Um, but actually, if we look at the Spirit and the Son, um, we see that they interact, and the Spirit plays a huge role in the ministry of Jesus. Um, so, <laughs> uh, Luke 1, um, Jesus was begotten of the Holy Spirit. Um, so something of his coming into this world uh, happens because of the Holy Spirit's interaction. Jesus led a holy and spotless life and offered himself without spot to God through the working of the Spirit. Jesus was anointed and fitted for service by the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit in his movements here upon the earth. So actually, even as though we think about the, the flow being from the Father outwards, there are times when the Spirit even leads or directs Jesus as well. So it is more mutual than hierarchical. Um, Jesus was taught by the Spirit who rested upon him. The Spirit abode upon Jesus. Now, this is very dated language because it comes from a very dated writer. This, I don't typically speak like this in everyday life. The Spirit abode upon Jesus in all his fullness, and the words he spoke in consequence were the words of God. After his resurrection, Jesus gave commandments to his apostles whom he'd chosen through the Spirit. Jesus wrought his miracles here on earth in the power of the Spirit. It was, the power of the Spirit that by, it was by the power of the Spirit that Jesus was raised from the dead. So in all of the mission of God, we see an interaction between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not like the Father and Son get on with the mission and then the Spirit has something to do later after Pentecost. Actually, the Spirit is very involved in the whole thing. And if you turn over to the next page, there are two ways um, which I think are quite helpful of understanding the work of the Trinity in the economy, so in this world. <laughs> and you can come at it from two directions, either thinking of it centred on the, the person of the Son or on the person of the Father. So on the left-hand side, um, if we read Matthew chapter 3, in fact, could someone read Matthew 3, verses 16 to 17? 
Anyone. <laughs> it's printed there on the thing. You don't have to look it up. Yeah, go for it. So this is, I think, a rare moment where we just see the Trinity, like, bam, front and centre. Uh, not explained, but uh, right there in the ministry of Jesus. But actually, I think this reveals something of what we should always be looking for in the ministry of Jesus. Whenever we see Jesus doing things, we should imagine that it's not just one person of the Trinity, it's all the people of the Trinity at work here, because Jesus is only there because he's been sent by the Father, and as he is working, he's probably been empowered by the Spirit as well. And this is a rare moment where we see it all come together at his baptism, But actually, whenever we see the work of Jesus, we should see the work of the whole Trinity. And so in this diagram, this way of thinking about it, um, we see that the Father is involved in sending the Son, and the Son is involved in serving the Father. And yet also, all around him, the Spirit is involved in everything. Jesus is conceived by, empowered by, led by, anointed by, filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is involved in imparting and completing Jesus' work. All Jesus' work is imparted and completed through the Holy Spirit. So one way of thinking about the activity of God is to look at Jesus and in Jesus see the work of the whole Trinity. The Father sends him, Jesus serves the Father, and the Holy Spirit empowers everything. But one other slightly different way of thinking about the interaction of the Trinity is to actually start with the Father and to imagine a model sort of focused on him. So one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, uh, writing about Genesis 2, um, thinking about creation, uh, argues that actually God is involved in creation itself. And he thought about this idea of God almost like having his hands, getting his hands dirty in the dust of the earth, creating all things. And he said this, um, it was not angels, therefore, who made us. God didn't outsource creation to a sort of external workforce, nor who formed us. Neither had angels power to make an image of God, nor anyone else except the word of the Lord. For God did not stand in need of these, as if he did not possess his own hands so God didn't outsource creation to others and actually that's a good thing because no angel could create something with such a dignity and purpose as as God did Uh, he possesses his own hands for with him were always present the word and wisdom the son and the spirit by whom and in whom freely and spontaneously he made all things to whom he uh, also he speaks saying let us make man in our image and likeness so Irenaeus thinking about the Genesis account says actually it's like God the father didn't outsource creation to angels he didn't need to because he already had his two hands of the son and the spirit now of course he doesn't mean this literally it's it's a metaphor and actually if we think about hands it's just yeah, it's a bit of a cumbersome metaphor but essentially what he's saying is that God works through the son and the spirit and their work is not exactly the same uh, but it is towards the same goal and so this picture here um, which I've stolen from Fred Sanders is a way of expressing that that actually the relationship from father to son and spirit which has always flowed out and now flows into the economy um, into this world results in the two hands of son and spirit coming together to create and you can almost imagine it like the father reaching down into the dust pulling things up and creating and he's saying that same flow like that has been involved in all salvation 
So we get the Son who is sent down to save us, but he doesn't do it alone. The Spirit comes as well as the second hand to empower the Son, and they join together in the act of salvation. The Son and the Spirit are the two hands of God. And their roles are slightly different. So the Son is incarnated. The Son takes on flesh. The Spirit doesn't do that. But without the Spirit, the Son couldn't take on flesh. Um, The Son doesn't come and dwell in us and empower us and give us spiritual gifts. The Spirit does that. So they have different roles of incarnation and indwelling. But together, these two hands reach down into the world and create uh, as procession from the Father. Do you see that? So I think when we think of it like that, we see, again, the interaction of all members of the Trinity. And we shouldn't look at Jesus and just go, oh, that's Jesus doing that little bit by himself and the Spirit will come later. Or we look at the Spirit and go, oh, the Spirit's just kind of got his own agenda over there. Actually, it's about the whole of the Trinity working together in creation and salvation. And we'll come back to that a little while later. But I think these are slight, kind of helpful models to start getting our heads round the idea of the Trinity and how, he, or how the Godhead works um, in our world. So let's move to the next page. And I just want to um, lay out these guidelines and then get you doing some group work. <coughs> and as I said... The Bible provides us with the raw materials, and then we have hundreds of years of the church trying to make sense of the raw materials and figure out how we can and can't speak about the Trinity. And what we have here, this diagram, is known as the shield of the Trinity, which expresses um, something of the way we are meant to think about the Trinity and guards against unhelpful ways of thinking about the Trinity, hence the metaphor of the shield. And it shows, really, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And yet, the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son. And I think you need to hold all those elements in tension in order to rightly understand the Trinity. Let's skip over the Nicene Creed for a moment, we'll come back to that properly later. But I think there are three elements to healthy Orthodox Trinitarian theology. Um, It affirms firstly distinction. God is three persons. And we see this in various different passages. Um, uh, God is three persons. Uh, Secondly, deity. Each person is fully God. Philippians 2, Acts 5, uh, various other places stress this. Each member of the Trinity is referred to as God. Uh, But unity, there is one God. And we need to hold all these three things together. Distinction, deity, and unity. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. And yet there is one God. That is the essence of Trinitarian theology. And that, I think, is the guidelines or the sort of um, the boundaries to help us to understand whether when people talk about the Trinity, they're talking about the Trinity as accurately portrayed in Scripture and held by the church for centuries, or whether they're actually out of the bounds of what is considered orthodox um, Trinitarian theology. And often the biggest problems uh, and heresies come when people deny one of those three elements. Um, maybe more of one of those more than one of those three elements so if people deny the distinction of god that god is three persons then they tend to fall into a heresy that is known as modalism uh, and modalism is essentially the idea that the trinity is not distinct persons but god acting in different modes or different ways at different times so it's almost like there's really only one god uh, and he just wears different masks at different moments to play different roles uh, that 
denies the distinction that we see between Father, Son, and Spirit in Scripture. So some people will talk about the fact that really there's only one God, but he portrayed himself as Father in the Old Testament. He portrayed himself as the Son in the New Testament. And now he portrays himself in the Spirit because... You know, he's not here on earth with us. That denies, I think, the distinction that we see where Jesus talks about the Father as if he is different from him, as if he has sent him. He talks about the Spirit as the one who is to come. Modalism is a heresy uh, and is based on a, a denial of the distinction of the members of the Trinity. If we deny the deity of the Trinity, if we deny the idea that each person is fully and equally God, we end up with um, a heresy known as Arianism. Um, And if you do want to read through the history of uh, Trinitarian theology, you'll find a whole section really on Arius and um, his contribution and the various debates that, that focused around him. He basically was guilty of denying that Jesus was fully God. And he argued that Jesus was actually created and therefore less than fully God. Um, And the teaching of Arius was finally condemned in 325 AD at the Nicene Council. Um, And you see this in various forms. Some people will say, well, Jesus is God, yeah, but he wasn't there at the beginning, uh, and so he's kind of a lesser God. Uh, Or he was created at some point, he was a lesser God, or the Spirit isn't God. All of these denials of the deity lead to this heresy of Arianism. And thirdly, some people, although this is less common, to be honest, deny the unity, the idea that there is one God. And some people say, well, no, actually, what we don't have is one God. We have three separate gods. And that's tritheism. That's not the same um, as as a Trinitarian theology. Um, But you don't really see that a lot, to be honest. It's usually modalism or Arianism are the main sort of heresies that people fall into. And when I say people fall into those heresies, I mean, it's not always deliberate. Like, people don't always stand up and say, I'm an Arian, or I'm a modalist. Uh, uh, Like, people don't often do that. But... In subtle ways, our ways of thinking and talking about or worshipping or praying to the Trinity suggest that we actually have a deficient view, that we've not held the distinction deity and unity altogether, and that whether we know it or not, we may be thinking about God in a way that denies one of those elements. So actually, I think a lot of popular ways of thinking about the Trinity, or even the way we pray, or the way we talk, or the way we try and get our heads around the Trinity, um, may be deficient. And so it's really helpful always to come back to this question, um, does the way I'm talking here, does the metaphor I'm using, does it actually uphold all these three things? Deity, distinction, oh, (laughs) click my finger, I don't know if you heard that. Uh, Deity, distinction, and unity. Um, Or does it end up blending them or tearing them apart? And I think that's quite a helpful measure just to go back to. So even at times today, if we're thinking about things, it's worth going back and saying, yeah, but how does that fit with the distinction of the persons? Or how does that fit with the deity of the persons? Because if we find that we are missing one of those three things, we're probably in danger of repeating mistakes that have happened right throughout church history and thinking about the Trinity in unhelpful ways. So turn over the page to the next one. And what I want to do is to think about three ways that people often uh, try and explain the Trinity. You may have heard of some of these um, and think, well, do these work? Um, Are they helpful or unhelpful ways of thinking about the Trinity? What I'd like to do is get us into three groups. Um, So, let's see. I don't know how many people we've got here. Great. Okay, let's go. Uh, You can be one massive group over here. um, And let's go the first three rows and then the back two rows. 
three groups, and you're totally un uneven, but that's fine, um, just for the moment. I would like this group over here to take the egg analogy. And the egg analogy, I have been taught at Sunday school, um, the trinity is like an egg, three in one, yolk, white, and shell, yet still one egg. And what I want you to do is take that and discuss it and just say, is it helpful? Um, or does it deny any of those one thing, uh, those three elements? And if so, which one does it deny? Uh, you group at the front, can you take water? The trinity is like water, uh, solid, ice, gas, steam, or liquid, but remains H2O. And the guys at the back, the trinity is like a man who is a father, son, and a husband, yet remains one person. Just take five minutes to talk about those. Are they helpful analogies? Where are they helpful? Where are they unhelpful? What elements do they affirm? What elements do they deny? Go. Okay, this is the moment where we get to test you and find out if you're heretics and need to be burnt at the stake or, um, or if, if, if we're going to let you survive the rest of the day. <clears throat> okay, let's start with the egg group. Um, so... The metaphor, so we have a metaphor, um, and the question is, is it helpful or is it unhelpful? Does it affirm or does it deny any particular el elements of uh, either distinction, deity, or unity? Um, and therefore, it, yeah, does it accurately reflect God or not? Uh, so the egg metaphor is this. The trinity is like an egg, three in one, yolk, white, and shell, yet still one egg. Just out of interest, has anyone ever heard that in a sermon or been taught that at you know, Sunday school or whatever? Yep. You don't come to Christchurch, so it must have been at your church. So that's, uh, you know, that's completely <laughs> understand. <laughs> I nearly named your church, but I resisted for the good of the podcast because, uh, you know, they wouldn't know I was joking. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding, of course. I'm kidding. Um, um, but a few of us have heard that. Okay. So, um, egg group. Uh, what did you make of this analogy? Say no to the eggs, okay. <laughs> About the Trinity or about the metaphor? They... Oh, no, not the metaphor. But, like, the thing is, the Trinity itself, that is a difficult concept to understand. But yeah. bringing this egg thing into it, it, it just doesn't fully kind of um, grasp the whole concept. Yeah. So it's like we were discussing... You said something really interesting about something. <laughs> <laughs> That's an incredible way of just passing the buck. Yeah. Sure, sure. Sure. Okay. So which of these elements so it denies it denies unity, doesn't it, really? Um yeah. Yeah, that's it. So they, they are fundamentally different things 
encapsulated together. They are not of the same substance, not of the same essence. Like, that, which is why in a recipe for cooking eggs, like, it doesn't say, use any bit of the egg you want. Like, you're not going to eat the shell, are you? You know, scrambled shells are not regularly on a menu. They? they don't share the same substance. They just happen to be encapsulated together in one little um, sort of egg-shaped pocket. Uh, yeah, this, didn't, this is... This is um, yeah, it's, it's tritheism, essentially. Um, it's three distinct elements that happen to sort of be encapsulated together. It denies the unity of the thing, yeah. Now, of course, there are certain things that are, are like an egg is a source of life, and again, all sorts of things you can make helpful, but fundamentally, it doesn't actually help us. I think it hinders us more than it helps us because it allows us to think about God in a way that really downplays his glory um, and is heretical, yeah. Well, then you passed. <laughs> um, water group. You were the water group, right? Yes. Okay, so water. The Trinity is like water. It can be solid, ice, it can be gas, steam, or it can be liquid, but it remains H2O. Um, out of interest, who's heard this? Yeah, more, okay, more than the egg. Yeah. Um, Who's heard it at Christchurch, London? Phew. <laughs> Good. Um, <clears throat> great. Um, what do we make of this metaphor? My few has clearly just given a game away that it's <laughs> heretical, isn't it? So, yeah, what do, uh, what do we make of this? Is it helpful? Is it unhelpful? Um, Are you the spokesperson? <laughs> no, I see done. Yeah, great. That's it. So did you all hear that? Um, so essentially, um, it's, it's modalism, basically, because it denies the distinction of them. Um, water, H2O, can be liquid. H2O can be steam. H2O can be ice. But it can't be all those things at one time. The H2O changes its mode, changes its form, um, and is akin to thinking that in the Old Testament, God was like, I'm like a father, but then he's like, let's just costume change, and now I'm like the sun, and boom, now I'm like the spirit. I've become a gas, and it's like... That, that's modalism, that's a heresy um, because it says there's one God who acts in different ways it denies the distinction between them uh, so again I think it's actually a really unhelpful analogy because it helps, it, it causes us to think about God in an unhelpful way it blends the essences together and doesn't um, show, you, you know you can't be all those things at one time There's a particular... Si- so you're saying, yeah, so there's a particular... Sure. Okay, yeah. But, but what I'm saying is that so the way that the analogy is used is fundamentally unhelpful um, because it suggests that God transitions between states, uh, which even if there is a moment where of crossover where something is 
you know, different states in one, um, it is in a transition from one state to another. Um, whereas the point with the Trinity is that God does not move to become different points. He has eternally existed as three separate persons whilst one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this was not intended to be an exploration of either recipes for the egg group or science for this group. Um, but, uh, but, but, but like I say, actually, there are certain things that are helpful about particular analogies um, and can get us some of the way, but it's what you actually have to lose in order for that analogy to be helpful. And I think you lose something quite major in terms of um, actually the, the distinction between the persons in this thing. Yeah. Um, third group, then. The, the man group. <laughs> um, the Trinity is like a man and a man, I put in the notes, sorry about that typo, um, <clears throat> who is a father, a son, and a husband, yet remains one person. Anyone heard this analogy? A few, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the water one seems to have been the most popular analogy that people have heard, and then egg and the man, yeah. So what do you think of that? Um, is that a helpful or unhelpful analogy? It's modalism because... Sorry, I missed that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so again, it denies the distinction. Um, it, it makes a nice point about unity um, and uh, the idea that one man can uh, have different roles, um, but actually it denies the distinction between them. It's not just that God has different roles, plays different characters to different people at different times, um, I am a husband, and I am a father, and I am a son, but I'm not those things to everyone. Like, I, I am not a son to my daughter, or a you know, husband to my mum, thankfully. <laughs> um, just to clear that one up, I know that was a, a question you were going to ask later, but um, uh, I, 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 I am different things, but I'm one person. But look, it's, it's modalism to say that God sort of plays different roles to different people. Um, yeah. You're absolutely right, it denies the distinction. Also, the aspect of um, you um, were, may have been called the son, hmm. you have only just recently. Yeah. 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 That's true. Yeah, so when you then put it, take the human relations and put them into the eternal, um, uh, actually, that sort of leads to Arianism in the idea that oh, God became a father when he created Jesus, who is a lesser God. Yeah, yeah. So I think what I'm trying to get at here is the fact that analogies can get us so far, um, but there is nothing like the Trinity. Like, we're not going to be able to go, oh, that's just like this, because it's God. Like, <laughs> if we could find something that we compare to God, if you could compare God to an egg and that be an accurate representation of who he is, that would be a really disappointing God to worship, wouldn't it? Like, it, in a weird kind of way, the fact that I can't get my head around the character of God encourages me to worship. Because if I could, if I could answer every one of your questions and feel like, yeah, I've got the Trinity nailed, he's not really worthy of my worship. Because if he can fit inside my tiny little head, he's... he's uh, you know, he's a nice idea, but nothing more. I want a God who I can't understand fully. I don't want a God who's logically inconsistent and incoherent, but I don't think we have that in the Trinity. What we have is a God who is mysterious, who has revealed himself, um, and who we can start to get our heads around and worship and enjoy. And the fact that we will never exhaust the fullness of who he is is actually brilliant, because it kind of keeps us worshipping, keeps us uh, learning more about him. Uh, analogies can be helpful to a point but then they can become unhelpful. And like I say, very few people go, I would like to be known as a modalist or an Aryan. Like most of us 
don't present ourselves like that. We don't actively choose. But it's worth thinking in the language that we use, in the way that we pray, in the way that we worship, in the assumptions we have, uh, are we in danger of portraying actually unhelpful um, views that the church has historically rejected. And I think the way to keep ourselves on the straight and narrow is any time we're thinking about the Trinity, think about deity, distinction, and unity. Am I affirming all those things as scripture does? Look at the shield of the Trinity, saying, am I in danger of uh, contradicting one of those statements there? Am I in danger of blending together the Father and the Son and denying their distinction? Am I in danger of um, worshipping the Father in a way that makes me think that the Spirit is not really God. Uh, I think these are good safeguards for us, not just today, but actually as we think about um, theology generally, and as we interact with others as well, and particularly other Christian groups or groups associated with Christianity or who claim to use the same scriptures as us, um, to be able to say, well, is their view, does it fit this shield? Does it fit these categories? Um, If not, how not? Um, Yeah. Questions? So we have all these three analogies. I understand that there's some contradictions to the three distinction diet of unity. So in Christ London, what do you teach to the children describing the Trinity? What kind of analogy do you use in Sunday school? Um, well, I've not taught in the Sunday school at, at Christchurch. What I do is I'd say, come along to this day on a Saturday where I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> and uh, three-year-olds clearly haven't turned up today. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, I, I think actually I would probably um, I get the temptation to, to go for an analogy and then of course in many areas I want to go for analogies and when I preach to adults I want to go for analogies and um, to help people but you've always got to ask um, in this analogy am I giving up something that I really shouldn't give up um, so I, I would use analogies that portray part of the gospel um, but if I'm doing it on a Sunday even in a regular sermon I might want to say this is an insufficient analogy because it doesn't actually reflect this aspect of God but it does help you to understand this as- aspect of God so if you're able to be clear and say this is helpful for this area but not helpful for this area um, that might be useful but I think actually in the minds of children you want to be really careful because you don't want to lead them down a path and expect them to be able to draw the distinctions so I would actually probably not use an analogy I don't think there's any one analogy that works at all because I don't think there's anything analogous to the trinity um, I like C.S. Lewis's, uh, C.S. Lewis's line box cube thing um, but that's hard enough for me to get my head around let alone a child so <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna, uh, but there may be a way of doing that that says hey let's get pens and I don't know there may be some way of doing that I don't know um, but ultimately I would want them to focus on the things that we can know so Jesus is God Holy Spirit is God the Father is God um, but Jesus and the Father are different and we can think a little bit about father and child relationships hopefully they might have had good relationships or bad relationships we can talk about why that doesn't reflect the trinity i'd want to talk in sentences and paragraphs and long conversations rather than snappy analogies i think um which is why incidentally the this is these are debates that have gone on for centuries and which is why the creeds um are not God is like an egg, God is like water, whatever. It's, it's like, it's, it is torturous language at some times. In fact, if you go back the page and just read this snippet of the Nicene Creed, <laughs> and we'll, we'll read the whole thing at the end. 
He says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, in brackets, and the Son, because there's debate over that, um, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, so even though there's debate about the procession, they wanted to make it really clear, but they're both, they're all three worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets and so on. And in that language, like, you read it and you, you just think, oh, I see where you put that word and not that word, and you've clarified that word in that way, because it's so important to get these things right. And no snappy analogy will, will kind of sum it all up in one go. So, um, so I, I avoid teaching the Trinity to kids. <laughs> Um, <laughs> is my short answer. <laughs> That's why I'm not on kids' work. Um, yeah. In any of those analogies? Well, I don't think they do, because they're, they're um, uh, and partly because the analogies are all focusing on things that are obviously not God, so egg, water, man. But, um, uh, but maybe, I think, um, a different way of putting the deity thing is um, uh, equal value or something like that, um, uh, because uh, oft, often when people deny the deity, um, they... So actually, some, some heresies will not deny that Jesus is a God. They will just deny that he is God on, equal, uh, on an equal level of divinity. Um, and so various, yeah, various groups um, will say that God, Jesus is a created God, but he is a God rather than the God of the same substance. So, um, so maybe there the issue is not, is Jesus divine? Some people say yes, but he's just less divine. The issue is, is he equally divine? Um, Sorry, is that? Is it um, well, I guess there are different aspects of it. So you would have evangelical Christians who want to argue that there is hierarchy within the Trinity, but would say um, each each member of the Trinity is equally God, but they have different roles, and therefore there is some kind of hierarchy. But then you'd have Jehovah's Witnesses who would say um, Jesus is a God, but he is not God. He was a created God. He was created at a particular point in time. And I think the difference there, uh, there is a difference um, uh, and I think, I think both of them are a denial of. Um, well, it goes against God's word. God's word said Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the yeah. Great yeah. In <clears throat> sure. Yeah. Yeah, which obviously I agree with. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so the analogies may get us so far, but I think we're always going to have to say with an analogy, this helps us on this area, but it doesn't help us on this area. And and I think. I would probably not bother with any of the analogies, but say, here are the things that scripture is clear about. Um, there is one God who exists as three persons um, e- who are equally God. Um, they are distinct, but they are one. Um, and I can go to particular passages and show you that. Um, and then if you say, how does that work? Help me with an analogy. I'd probably say, I don't think I can reduce God to an analogy. Um, 
but let's talk about how these things work. Let's talk about how we experience the Trinity, how we see it, him in work. And uh, that's kind of where we're going to get to later this afternoon. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.